is that about the greatest thing you've ever seen or what? Anybody else have multiple kids and relate to that really, really well? Uh, happy Thanksgiving. Uh, oh, goodness. Uh, before the service, we ran through that, and I howled the whole time. And it's the fourth time I've seen it. So uh, um, it brings back some memories. Hey, you know, um, as a culture, we're obsessed with the end of the world, right? We, we think, what, what, what's it all going to be like? If you're a global warming person, you, you, you know, global warming's coming, everything's going to get wiped out because of global warming, right? Um, Hollywood says that the world's going to end with a nuclear catastrophe, right? And we can only be saved by Sean Connery, <laughs> Roger Moore, Pierce Brosnan, Timothy Dalton, or Daniel Craig, right? It's, that's just kind of the way it is. Even the, even the music industry uh, sings about the end of the world, right? Were you here at the beginning of the service? Heard REM, it's the end of the world as we know it. Even in the Christian community, we look, based on Scripture, we look to the last days, to the end of the world, and we say, what's, what's it going to be like? As a kid, I remember um, in, the, in 1970, a book was written, that sold 17 million copies called The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey. Anybody remember that? Uh, really colorful book. Uh, a little bit later in 1988, uh, uh, before the internet existed, a book came out that went viral. It was a, a paper book that went viral. 88 Reasons Why the Rapture is Going to Occur in 1988. I remember going into a Christian bookstore in 1988. Uh, a couple of months before uh, this, the date that was assigned to Jesus' rapture, and they could not keep copies of that on the shelf. People buying them like crazy. Um, e- even since that time, there, there have been a number of other times, a continuous string of folks who have said, oh, this is when Jesus is coming back, right? 2001, or 2007, 2011, and just so you know, there is an eclipse that's going to happen in 2027 that if you go to that website, it will tell you Jesus will be back before then, and that's going to be a part of the last days. You know, it's easy for us to kind of make fun of the doomsday predictions, to, to, uh, to look and wonder and think, ah, what's it going to be like in the last days? Time's going to just keep moving forward, maybe Maybe there's not even really going to be last days. Maybe Jesus is going to come back sometime, but it's so far in the future that, that uh, we can't really put our hands on it. Anybody ever been in a study, in a Bible study, to, to look for the signs of the times, to help identify uh, when the last days are going to happen? It, it, they happen a lot. Um, Peter, one of the best friends of Jesus, the guy who walked on water, the guy who denied his friendship, The guy who looked Jesus in the eye and said, he he was the first one to say, you're God's son, you're the Messiah. He he began to teach about, uh, in in the end of his second letter, about what the last days are going to look like. And he says to us at that point in time, uh, here's what you can know about the last days. The world's going to be a mess. The world's going to be a mess. That's just the way it is. Grab out, grab a Bible uh, uh, from the pew if you've got your app open. We're going to go to 2 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to, we're going to finish our series called Holy, Holy, and Holy um, this morning. Um, Peter has been writing, giving instruction to the church for how to live, to live lives that are holy, holy, entirely holy, and yet the reality that, that we're holy and the world seeps into us. 
Peter finishes with this look towards the last days that really kind of captures this whole last chapter. I'm starting to read in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I've written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. Peter says, remember what the prophets said, the Old Testament prophets. Remember what they wrote. Remember what Jesus said. Remember what the apostles have told us. What's the world going to be like in the last days? It's going to be filled with scoffers. It's going to be a mess. Timothy, a young preacher that Paul wrote to, uh, described it this way. Uh, Paul writes this to Timothy. Mark this. 2 Timothy chapter 3, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. Have nothing to do with such people, Paul tells Timothy. The world's going to be a mess in the last days. That's a pretty good description of what it looks like, what our world looks like. Peter says specifically, there are going to be scoffers. There are going to be people who look at you that believe that the last days are coming, that the last days are here, and they're going to look at you and laugh. They're going to make fun of you. They're going to jeer at you. You've, you've had that conversation before, right? Where somebody has said, you don't think Jesus is really actually going to return, that he's going to come in the way the Bible describes, because that's impossible, because the earth is round. How could Jesus return in the sky and everybody see him at the same time? That's impossible, right? You're stupid. Anybody had that kind of conversation before? Um, People who scoff, who jeer, who make fun of what the Bible says. The world's going to be a mess in the last days, and people aren't going to believe that the last days have come, that the end is coming. As we keep, keep reading in, in, second, in, in second Peter chapter 3, they will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters, also the, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. The world that we live in assumes that the world as we know it is going to just keep going as it is. That's that's why the global warming threat is such a big deal. Oh, the temperature's rising. If we keep on this same path, everything's going to be destroyed. Everything's going to fall apart. The world looks at where we are and where we've been and said, uh, there is, all we can do is project that into the future. And Peter says, hold on a second. Think back. Take the big picture look. At the beginning of time, God separated the waters from each other and created the earth. He separated those waters. 
and created the earth, created mankind, and that God then released those waters in a flood that destroyed the world, except for Noah, his wife, his three sons, and, um, and their wives. The world hasn't always been like it is today. We have fossil records, I believe, because of the flood. Um, Peter projects into the future and says, you know, the next time in the last days, when that happens, it's not going to be by water, it's going to be by fire. It's interesting that it says that God separated the waters to create the earth. And it's interesting to, to recognize that we live in an environment where we can exist because of the heat of the sun, right? And because the center of the earth is molten, the temperature that's inside the earth is so hot. Ultimately, when the earth is destroyed, it's going to be by fire, not by water, and that that day is coming. Um, when, we assume, when we assume that because the earth is the way it is, that it will never change, it's kind of like assuming your 15-year-old son is always going to live in your house for the rest of your life, right? He's been there for 15 years, after all. Some of you are saying, that is my reality, right? <laughs> it's... Uh, it's, it's like thinking, oh, you know what? My car, my car's great. It hasn't needed a repair for five years. It's going to last forever. That mentality that says because the earth has existed all this time without the return of Jesus means that Jesus is not coming back. It's just a faulty uh, thought process. It's a faulty premise. What do we know about the last days? The world's going to be a mess People aren't going to believe that the end is coming and that God sees time differently. Look at, look at verse 8. Don't forget this one thing, dear friends. With the, day, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. Don't miss this. Man, this is so important out of this passage of Scripture. God sees time differently than we do. Now, this is not a, a mathematical fact that, that for God, a day, is like a, thousand, a, a day is a thousand years. And when we look at Scripture, we can say, oh, Jesus was in the grave for three days, so he was really in the grave for three thousand. It's not that kind of, it's symbolic language that says, for God, time is different than for man. Um, we know that. We know that to be true, Right? How long did summer last when you were I talk when when you were 8 years old how long did summer last It was forever right You get to be 40 50 60 80 years old right How long does summer last It's a blink of an eye right It's like wait wait I'm ready for memorial day and it's labor day It's all done God sees time differently than we do when we get all freaked out because God doesn't do what we want in our timing, realize that God has his own sense of time. And that when God answers, when, when God responds to the things that, that we request of him, that it will always come at just the right time in his time frame. The big picture, not, not our time frame. We can trust him in that. God sees time differently. Um, what else do we know about the last days? God sees time differently, but he, he sees differently, and he wants everyone to repent. Look at what verse 9 says. God's not slow in keeping his promise, his son, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, 
not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Do you, do you ever wonder, are you at a place right now where you wonder, what is it that God wants me to do? Am I supposed to take this job or not take this job? Am I supposed to move to California or stay in Michigan? Am I supposed to marry this person or am I supposed to break up with them? What is it that God wants me to do? You know, on lots of those questions, I'm not sure that there's a clear answer, but I can tell you definitively what God wants you to do. God wants you to repent. If you're in relationship with him, if you're not in relationship with him, he wants you to repent. This is not just a one-time repentance, but a continual process of taking inventory of our lives and seeing where we're separated from God, where we sin, and to have a change of heart. Repentance means that you're heading down one direction and you turn and head back towards God. You're heading down a direction where you're fulfilling your own desires, doing what you want, doing what makes sense to you. Repentance is is recognizing in your heart that that's not the best path, that God has the best path, and turning and coming back to him. It's It's this picture of an about face and coming back to God. Um, God wants everyone to turn to him, to repent. You know, you know that person in your life who, who is making your life horrible? That ex-husband or ex-wife, that person at work, that person on your street that is just blowing up your life, God wants them to repent. You know that person that's cheated you, that's hurt you, that's turned other people against you? God wants them to repent. He doesn't want them to perish. He doesn't want to condemn them. Last week we looked at John 3. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Understand that God is waiting patiently because he wants people to return to him. There is no one in your family, no one in your life, no one that you love that God doesn't want to turn back to him, to repent, keep praying, stay faithful in sharing what God's doing in your life. Don't be an obstacle to that person that you love, either in your zeal or in your reluctance to share what God is doing in your life. Understand that Jesus has not returned, that God has had Jesus wait for 2,000 years to return so that you could come to repentance and have a relationship with Jesus. We look and we say, God, why are you waiting so long? Why don't you just release Jesus and have him come back and, and, um, and save the world, move into eternity? You realize that if that had happened in the first century, you would not exist, and you would never have have had, have had the opportunity to be in eternity around the throne of God. If that had happened in the Middle Ages, if that had happened in 1919, you never would have been born, and there would not have been the opportunity. God is patiently waiting to give the instruction to Jesus because he wants all to come to repentance, all to come back into relationship. God isn't slow He's patient. And his plan, his perspective is so much superior to ours. 
What do, we, what do we know about the last days when Peter writes about the last days? We know that nobody knows when that's going to happen. Verse 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. The day of the Lord is that day when Jesus returns, that day of reckoning, that day of judgment. Jesus in Matthew 26 talked about it this way. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, not, nor the Son, only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving up in marriage. Up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That's how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill, one will be taken, the other left. Therefore, keep watch, because you don't know on what day your Lord will come. Understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you do not expect him. Peter says, nobody knows that day that's coming. He's, he, the, the last days are going to come like a thief in the night. And he says, don't miss this. It's going to be terrible. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. The earth and everything will be laid bare. It's going to be terrible. That first destruction of the earth was by water. The second time, it's going to be by fire. And it's going to be devastating. No one will escape it. But even in the midst of that reality... It's something, if we know Jesus, that we can look forward to. Not if we know about Jesus. Not if we intellectually have said, oh, yeah, I think it makes sense that Jesus is the Son of God. I think that it makes sense intellectually that God is really the creator of the universe. It's not that. It's knowing Jesus, pursuing, following Jesus, being changed by Jesus, being committed to the mission of Jesus. If we know him, if we know him, the end is something that we can look forward to. Verse 11, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise... We are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. The Apostle Paul wrote it in these words to the church in Thessalonica, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, hear these words, encourage one another with these words. Peter says, yeah, destruction's coming. This earth is going to end. It's going to be terrible. But we can look forward to that day, not to the destruction, but to what's beyond it, what's on the other side. When we can see eternity, that's, that's a, 
a, a blip. It's a step that we have to move through to step into eternity. Um, I, don't, I don't know that this is a great illustration, but I remember a conversation I had probably uh, seven or eight years ago with a lady in Ohio. Their house had burnt up completely. They, they were wealthy. They had lots of possessions. Their house had caught fire at Christmas time, and literally everything had burnt to the ground, and all their possessions were gone. Everything. And I ask, um, I ask how she felt about that when I talked to her. This is several months later, and she said, "You know what's funny? I felt free. I felt free. I didn't have to worry about any stuff at all." I, I get that. Three years ago, this Christmas. Um, on December 23rd, Friday afternoon, uh, I'm thinking about the Christmas Eve service, planning for that, and I got a call from one of our neighbors in Ohio, a uh, neighbor to my mom and dad's house where they had lived for 58 years. And the neighbor said, hey, um, I got to tell you something. I said, what's that? And he said, the mailman stopped and there's water running out of your mom and dad's house from the second floor down the back of the house. My dad had moved into assisted living about a, a year before that, a little bit more than that. So the house had been empty. We'd been working our way through the possessions that were there. And, um, and in an instant, everything changed with the house. It was two days before Christmas. Had to call to get a crew in to try and get the water stopped, to get all that mess cleaned up. Everything was there. Most everything in mom and dad's house was destroyed. Most all of it was gone. In the midst of the cleanup, because they ended up having to take out all the walls, taking out the floors, taking out the ceilings, all that stuff, stripped, stripped everything back to studs. One of the guys that was working on the house said, you know what, we'd like to turn this house if we could. We'll, we'll buy it as is once it's cleaned out. And, um, and you know what my sisters and I said? That'd be great. Because <laughs> we didn't have to mess with any of it. Here's the point of that story. You can focus on the destruction or you can look to what's beyond it on the other side. For my sisters and I, it was, uh, yeah, lots of memories in that house. Lots of memories, lots of stuff that was there that connected us to our roots and all that kind of stuff. But what we saw on the other side was a sense of freedom that came, not having to worry about that stuff. Um, we need to look, we need to look past what's going on, past the end days to eternity. The earth, our bodies are going to be destroyed. It's not going to be pretty, whether it's when Jesus returns or whether it's when we die here on earth. But we don't need to be afraid. We can look past those events past those last days, to being in the presence of Jesus, and we can celebrate that. So what, what do we do? If Jesus is coming back, how should we live? How should we live? Two words, holy, holy. The theme of this series has been Peter's continual challenge to us to live holy, holy lives. Your chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Peter says, verse 11, I just read these verses, but hear the emphasis of these words. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives 
as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. So then, dear friends, since you're looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. You know, in every message, there really is this sense of, uh, oh, you teach us from, uh, you teach from Scripture. Uh, that's great. That's good truth. So what? They're going to be last days. Jesus is going to come back. So what? Here's the so what. What do we do? Live holy, holy lives. Be drawn to Jesus. Let him do the work in us to live in a way that reflects God's nature on a daily basis. We need to say no to sin and yes to Jesus on a daily basis, on a moment-by-moment basis because we know what's on the other side, because we know that eternity's coming. Skip Heitzig, the, the pastor at uh, Calvary Chapel in Albuquerque, New Mexico, said, uh, said this, and I, I just thought it was so great. Until we start believing the reality of the other side, that's when we'll start behaving differently on this side. The reason we don't behave differently on this side is because we don't believe the reality of that side. When we do, we will. When we believe with our whole hearts that eternity is real, that Jesus is coming back, that we're going to die, and that we want to be in the presence of God for eternity, and that's reality, that will begin to shape our decisions. It becomes so much easier to say no to sin and to say yes to Jesus. Peter continues, Bear in mind that our Lord's patience, patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote with you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort, as they do the other scriptures, to their own destruction. Um, Peter says again, God's patience um, is so that more people can be saved. And, and he says, Paul says the same thing. Uh, this passage is a little bit, it feels like it's a little bit uh, of a rabbit trail, a little bit of, a, of an offshoot in terms of this teaching about the last days. But, but follow me because there's, there's some truths in, in verses 15 and 16 that are really important. Peter describes Paul as his dear brother. Um, that sounds warm and lovely, right? Like they're good pals. Do you understand the history of Peter and Paul? Peter was with Jesus. Paul was, Paul was at that point in time, was known as Saul. He was a, he was a Jewish zealot. Um, Peter, uh, from the time that Jesus res- resurrected, Peter saw him. Peter really was kind of the face of Christianity. He was the guy on the, his picture was on the evening news, right? He was in the newspaper. That, that This is the, the Christians led by Peter. First nine chapters of the book of Acts, it's all about Peter. And when Paul comes on the scene, all of a sudden that changes. And Peter just kind of moves into the background. And Paul takes this prominent spot in the first century, in the, hit, in the history of the church. That alone, you'd think, man, that, that, I wonder what that dynamic was like. But in Acts 15, something really crazy happens. There's this, there's this uh, disagreement between Peter and Paul over theology, and, and Paul comes to Jerusalem and challenges Peter. He basically chastises Peter in front of all the apostles 
Everybody who's there in Jerusalem and says, Peter, you're wrong. Can you imagine that conversation? Paul saying, this is, this is what God told me. And Peter saying, oh yeah, I was with Jesus. Where were you? you know, that it, it seems like there would be this incredible tension that happened. And yet Peter, as he's ready to die, the last few months, at least the last few years of his life, he says, Paul, my dear brother, um, you, you would think that there would have been an animosity. Instead, there's this incredible love. There's something else in those verses that I think is just so rich. Peter puts Paul's writings on the same level as the Old Testament. Uh, Peter says about Paul, his letters contain some things that are hard to understand. Anybody agree with that? You read, you read some of Paul's stuff and you say, what's that about? They're hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures. Peter compared what Paul had written, the teachings of Paul's, with the Old Testament prophets. He put them on the same level. Peter recognized that what had been given to, to, to followers of Jesus through Paul, through Paul's letters, through the things that he said, they were as clear and as powerful as Scripture, God speaking through them. Um, look back at, at what Peter wrote at the very beginning of, of, of uh of chapter 3 and verse 2. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Peter said that stuff that has been passed around from church to church, it is the voice of God. As Paul wrote to Timothy, all scripture is God-breathed. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. If the end's coming, what do we do? So what? Be holy, holy. Recognize the place of Scripture to teach us how to have that relationship with God that draws us to him, that changes us from the inside out. The second thing Peter says is be on guard. Verse 17, therefore, dear friends, since you've been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position. Peter says, look, if, if you're getting ready for the last days, man, you've got to be on guard. You've got to be aware. You've got to be alert. You've got to be ready to go. You've got to, it, it's why it's so important for us to study the scriptures. It's why it's so important for us to not just say, oh, I read through the Bible at the beginning of of." Uh, uh, 2019, I'm good, but to be continually in God's word, to let his word teach us. It's why it's so important for us to memorize scripture, to listen with discernment to whoever teaches God's word. The message from last week, to recognize that there will be false teachers and to, and to know God's word, to be able to discern what's right and wrong. And to not get so caught up in the value system of the world that we miss Jesus. Peter's final words, his last challenge, last days are coming, how, how should we live? So what? He says grow. Verse 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and forevermore. The last days are coming. 
They're not something that we need to be afraid of. They're not something that we need to fear. It's going to be a terrible thing. It's going to be a terrible thing. But what's on the other side gives perspective to that. So what do we do? We live holy, holy lives. We live on guard, alert, always always, um, uh, sifting everything that we experience, everything that we see through the lens of Scripture. And we grow. You know, um, I, I feel like I say this all the time, but it's so critical. It's not enough to simply come to church and sit and listen. It's not enough to simply read Scripture and say, oh, check that off, did my thing. God wants to change your life. He wants to transform the way that you think. He wants to transform your heart. He wants to do a new work in you. And without that, none of it matters. We need to be holy, holy, because of what God has done for us through Jesus. Isaac Watts, in studying the truths of Psalm 98, wrote a poem that focused on the return of the Messiah to judge the earth. The end of Psalm 98 says this, Let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live it, for he comes to judge the the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. You know this poem that Watts wrote because it was set to music. And while we don't associate it with the last days or with the return of Jesus, it's my understanding that that's specifically what was on Isaac Watts' mind when he wrote the words, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And heaven and nature sing. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. Admiral James Stockdale was one of the most decorated United States Navy officers during the Vietnam War. He was given the Medal of Honor uh, for his service during the Vietnam War. He was held in the Hanoi Hilton for eight years, from 1965 to 1973 when the war ended. Um, He was tortured over 20 times. He had no prisoner's rights, no release dates, no idea of whether he would survive to see his family again. When the end of the war came, when the end of the Vietnam War came, Stockdale was asked how he survived when so many other soldiers died in the Hanoi Hilton that were imprisoned. What made the difference for him between the guys who survived and the the guys who didn't? Um, He said that the men who survived had an unwavering belief that they would be rescued at some point in time. That those guys survived, but the guys who didn't survive were the guys that said, oh, we're going to be rescued. We're going to be rescued by this Thanksgiving. And Thanksgiving would come and go. And they'd say, you know what? We're going to be rescued by Christmas. And Christmas would come and go. 
and then say, okay, Thanksgiving and Christmas have come and gone by Easter. We're going to be, we're going to be rescued by Easter. And Easter would come and go. We're going to be rescued by the 4th of July. And the 4th of July would come and go. Stockdale said those guys that assigned a date to their release didn't survive because their hope was crushed over and over. But the guys who survived were the guys who said, you know what, we're going to be released. We're going to be freed from this prison because the United States is going to end this war and, and they're going to restore us to our families. When we assign a date to the last stage, to the return of Jesus, when we say, oh, it's got to be by this date, it's got to, you know, it's got to come at this point in time, in 2007, in 2011, whenever that is, and it doesn't happen the way that we anticipated, it builds in us this sense that, oh, Jesus is probably really not going to come. It's kind of hopeless. Yeah, it's good to remember that he said he'd come back, but who knows? Contrast that with this, with this dynamic sense of hope that Jesus is going to return. I don't know when. I don't know when it's coming, but he is going to return. And this earth is going to be wiped out. And we're going to be in eternity with him. Jesus' return is kind of like being pregnant. When you're pregnant, the question is not whether you're going to have a baby, right? It's only a question of when. I remember so clearly when Deb was pregnant the first time, thinking, okay, when, 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 you know? Uh, assigning a date, thinking, ah, we got to quit worrying about that. By the sixth kid, we said, you know what? They said it's going to be in March. It's probably, the baby's probably going to come by April, you know, somewhere in there. It's not a question of when, uh, uh, of if. It's a question of when. In the first century, in the first century, um, we, we, on Easter morning, we talk about what happened in the first century that, you know, that, that uh, when the church would come together, they would say, Christ is risen, and everybody would respond, he's risen indeed. He's risen indeed. Well, one of the things that, we're, that, that we are not quite as aware of was the, just a normal greeting that happened all the time in the first century church. Someone would pass a fellow believer, and they would say, Hallelujah. And for us, hallelujah, we kind of miss the meaning. It doesn't just mean praise God. It means like go wild and crazy. Be crazy about who God is and what he's doing. It's like this, woo-hoo, hallelujah kind of thing, right? So when they said hallelujah, it was this exuberant praise to God. And you know what the response of the other believer would be to the person who said hallelujah? Maranatha. A word that meant, Lord, come quickly. Praise God. Woohoo! Lord, come quickly. So I would say to you today, hallelujah, and you would respond, Maranatha. Hallelujah. Maranatha. Hallelujah. Maranatha. Let's pray.